It is great to uh, see Brother Robert Buchanan this morning. We sure have missed you, Brother Robert. Um, I know that uh, with all of the surgeries and uh, the pain that he's been going through, it's difficult for him to come to church, but I know that otherwise uh, he is here every single service. So just seeing you here this morning is a great blessing and encouragement to all of us, Brother Buchanan. And then uh, several others I don't have time to uh, mention, but uh, good to see uh, a number of folks that we haven't seen for a while, and uh, it's always a joy to have everyone here on a Sunday morning. I'm going to speak this morning on the subject of Lordship Salvation versus Easy Believism. If you take your Bibles, go to the book of Acts chapter number 10. And certainly I could select many, many different verses that go along with this, but for whatever reason, this particular verse, because of a phrase that appears in it, really just stood out in my heart. And so because of that, I have selected this text in Acts chapter number 10. And I mentioned to the men here a couple of weeks ago that what inspired me for this message was a phone conversation that I had with evangelist Tim Green, who incidentally is going to be with us in the month of October. And he was talking about a book that he is going to be sending me from a preacher that I've heard of, but I really didn't know much about. And he kind of just uh, threw in a little disclaimer. It says, well, now this particular brother does teach a uh, a view of lordship salvation. And so we just got to talking about this concept of lordship salvation, and I thought, you know what, that would be, I just felt the Holy Spirit tug at my heart. You know, sometimes when you're thinking about something or you're feeling a certain way, it's amazing how that if we are listening to the Holy Spirit, He will just kind of direct our thoughts. And so uh, it took me a few weeks to put together uh, this particular study and message, but uh, I do believe that it's a very important topic that would be beneficial for all of us to have a biblical handle on this. Really, it's a controversy and has been a controversy in Christianity for quite some time. Let's begin in verse number 34 of Acts chapter number 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Peter is responding to an internal dilemma that he had when the vision from God appeared to him and said, Peter, I want you to go and preach to Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. He was uh, was not a Jew. And so uh, Peter was kind of, he didn't know what to do with this because the Jews had been, it had been instilled in them that the Gentiles were outside of the blessings of God, and uh, that they uh, really, they considered the Gentiles sinners. That was the category. And so uh, Peter is rehearsing this, and he's explaining that once he saw what God did, he perceived that God was not a respecter of persons. Verse 35, but in every nation... He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And the point that Peter is making here is that Cornelius was a man, although he was a Gentile, he was a man who feared the God of Abraham, the God of the Jewish Scripture. 
He feared him. He was trying to do right. And I think that at some point, even if it is the moment that the gospel message is presented to a person, there has to be something in the heart that accepts and acknowledges that God is God. And with Cornelius, this had been going on for however many years of his life. Perhaps maybe Cornelius came under uh, the the influence of the Jewish God of Judaism as a young age. We don't know. But when you study Romans chapter number 3, Paul makes it clear that God will look upon a Gentile who is by conscience obeying the law... He will look upon them more as a Jew than he does a true Jew who is breaking the commandments of God. And and he's basically saying that it all comes down to issues of the heart, not issues of pedigree. Now, since I said that, let me just make sure that every single person that can hear my voice, whether it be today or tomorrow... Listen, if you are trusting in any pedigree to get you to heaven, you need to get saved. Being a Baptist has nothing to do with salvation. Religious deeds that you have done, baptism, communion, you name it, none of those things. Being an American has nothing to do with the person's salvation. Listen, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Muslim, Buddhist, it doesn't matter what your pedigree is. The only way for anyone to get to heaven is to be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus quite plainly, no one's going to see the kingdom of God except they have been born again. Regeneration. It's just a descriptive theological term of being saved. All right, so verse number 35, But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. And then notice the last phrase in parentheses, He is Lord of all. Father, we pray that you would bless the message today. We pray, Father, that we would clarify any misconception that people have. We realize that there is certainly heresy on either side of this equation. Uh, We realize that there is truth on both sides of this controversy. Lord, our goal is not to defend any position here today, but our goal is Our aim is to present the truth of the Bible as it stands. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray that not only that you'd help us to speak clearly and concisely and to say things uh, with your blessings upon them, but also we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in all of our hearts that we would understand and receive the truth of the Word of God today. Uh, Take away any distractions, any prejudices that we might have, and may we focus on the truth of God's Word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As an introductory statement, I'd like to say this. Every vital doctrine in the Bible can be tweaked, twisted, or perverted by Satan 
to make it false or heretical. Likewise, every vital doctrine can be tweaked, twisted, or perverted in man's understanding to the point of heresy. So you got two things going on that produce heresy. And by the way, if you look at Galatians chapter number 5, you find that heresy is indeed a work of the flesh. So much of it comes from man's um, Im- imperfect understanding of Bible truth. Uh, but much of it also comes from Satan, who is a perverter of God's word. Yea, hath God said... Satan will take and use a twisted or perverted truth in order to accomplish his agenda. And really, at times, you can look at what he's saying and say, well, it's in the Bible. And much of what Satan, Satan will use the truth to twist the truth. He's really, really good about that. If you look at Galatians chapter number 1. Paul is addressing the churches of Galatia where they had people that were Jews that came up from Judea and they had, the, the Galatian Christians had been saved, but the Judy, the, the Judy, uh, Judy, <laughs> the Jewish Christians came up and they began to tell these Gentiles, look, you need to be circumcised like we are. You need to obey the commandments of God and all these different things. And so the Galatian Christians, their doctrinal understanding had been corrupted and perverted to the point that Paul says that it is another gospel. It's the gospel, but then when you add something to it, then it becomes another gospel. And it becomes heresy. Folks, a preacher... Any preacher or any author can make a simple statement that means one thing to one listener and completely different thing to another. I got a phone call years ago. Somehow one of our church gospel tracts found its way down to uh, somewhere uh, south of Charlotte in South Carolina. I don't know how it got it got down there, but a gentleman... I believe well-intentioned, called the church, I answered the phone, and I talked to him, and he was taking issue with something that was in our gospel track that said that men need to repent. And we had the Bible verse right in there about repentance, and he's, he's arguing with me saying, repentance is works. And I'm like, no, it's not. And, and so I tried to explain him and I really felt like that this was a sincere man who his understanding of the doctrine of repentance was a false understanding. And because of that, it's like he had to study the Bible and study the subject of repentance to the point where he truly understood salvation. And so he had to repent of his understanding of repentance. I hope I didn't confuse you. I understood what I meant. But but he's arguing, saying that repentance is works. And I'm arguing, saying, no, it's not. And I said, sir, this really comes down to semantics. Our definition of repentance from the Bible. And I said, tell you what, let's just forget about our understanding and your understanding. And let's just, let me just read a Bible verse to you. And I read a Bible verse on repentance. I said, 
what do we do with that? I'm not saying what I understand about it. I'm just declaring this is what the Bible says. And he, he, he never could answer those questions. But I said all that to say this, that in Christianity, there are a lot of controversies, a lot of sides that are drawn that don't come from the doctrine itself, but come from a person's understanding of that doctrine. Here's another example, and this is not, this has nothing to do with salvation, but I'm trying to get us to understand how the human heart sometimes will grasp truth. Now, I am zealous about being a literal, I'm zealous about the Bible being taken literally. You know, there, there are past Bible teachers, if that's what you want to call them. I, I think of a, one of the early, called early church fathers by the name of Origen, who introduced the idea that the entire Bible is an allegory. It's, it's basically a story that you've got to figure out what the story actually means and that none of it is to be taken literally. And I would say that Origen is indeed a heretic or was a heretic. The Bible is to be taken literally. And yet within the Bible, there are figurative, there's figurative language that has a literal truth. And sometimes you have to examine that figurative language in order to understand the truth that's being presented. If you take every single thing in the Bible literally, then um, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time explaining. You know the book of James says that the tongue is set on fire of hell? That is a figurative language that has a literal truth. It's not saying that the brimstone and fire of hell is actually my tongue is on fire of that. I guarantee you, if that was a literal truth, we would all be going to the water fountain right now. Amen? But yes, it is a literal truth because it's saying that hey, there's something spiritual and moral about our tongue that it's set on fire of hell. There are evil things that naturally want to come forth from the tongue. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2 and verse number 2, here Jonah says, I cried by reason of mine afflictions unto the Lord. And he heard me, out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. I, I, I know of a preacher who made a doctrine out of this statement, and literally preached that Jonah went to a literal hell just like Jesus did. And yet, if you really look at this, and, and listen, I believe that Jonah felt like he was in hell. I mean, the text says, he said, the bars of the earth compassed me, and he said that he felt like he was totally removed from the presence of God. There's no doubt in my mind that Jonah felt like he was in hell. And and the person can argue, but the book says that he cried out of the belly of hell. Well, how about verse number one, where it says, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. You follow what I'm saying? Because if you're going to be literal about verse number two, you've got to be literal about verse number one. And so, yes, there are figure, there's figurative language 
with literal truth, and we've got to accept and understand that. I'm not trying to get anyone to back off of our zealousness toward a literal interpretation of the Bible. But I will say this, that you can grab a hold of something literally, and you can drive your stakes in it and say, I'm standing on this truth, I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. And it really comes down to like a a bunch of preachers I knew back in the 80s, that they were so Bible literalist that they started calling themselves bishops instead of pastors. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But the problem was, is that everybody else that's going by pastor is now wrong because you're not as literal about the Bible as I am. And you know, the problem that it created, I mean, can you imagine if I started referring to myself as a bishop? What good would possibly come out of that in today's culture? Most people would think that you're a Catholic or some other kind of, they, they would, it would create more confusion than it would create clarification. And so what's wrong with being called a pastor when the Bible also literally calls the minister of the pastor uh, a pastor? I've heard many arguments among great men of God regarding this question. Came up several months ago as well. The question of, could Jesus have sinned? Now, we all know that he didn't. He was tempted by the devil, but some people have asked the question, did he have the capacity to sin? And and and, and I've heard people adamantly defend one position or the other. And there are certainly controversial perceptions that are worthy of discussion. But you know, there's a lot of things that are worthy of discussion, but not worthy of contention. Amen? Now, let me give you, first of all here, the lordship salvation argument. Some some of you may not be familiar with these terms, and so I'm going to try to just give a brief clarification. And listen, I'm going to say right up front that lordship salvation and easy believism not everybody's going to have just an exact identical interpretation or understanding of what that term means. But as a general rule, here's something that comes from a very well-known proponent of lordship salvation, a uh, pastor in California, national radio um, uh, minister by the name of John MacArthur. He said this, The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. I don't have any issue with that. In other words, a sinner who refuses to repent is not saved, for he cannot cling to his sin and the Savior at the same time. I have no problem with that. And a sinner who rejects Christ's authority in his life does not have saving faith, for true faith encompasses a surrender to God. Thus, the gospel requires more than making an intellectual decision or mouthing a prayer. The gospel message is a call to discipleship. Now, that statement, I'm not the end of that. I'm not quite sure that I could go along with that. The sheep will follow their shepherd in submissive obedience. 
And so like I've already said, uh, I believe there is a lot of truth in that statement. Now let's talk a little bit about the easy believism argument. Uh, a well-known preacher, fundamentalist, uh, editor of Sword of the Lord magazine, preacher by the name of Curtis Hudson, wrote a book in, uh, entitled Salvation Crystal Clear. And in this book, he had a chapter entitled Lordship Salvation, comma, a perversion of the gospel. He begins with the following warning. Lordship salvation is an unscriptural teaching regarding the doctrine of salvation and is confusing to Christians. Hudson calls lordship salvation another gospel, which contradicts the teaching of salvation by grace through faith. Now, I I have not read everything that Curtis Hudson or John MacArthur ever said about this subject. But I will say this, that both of those statements that I just read representing two sides of an issue, that both of them are chock full of truth. And I have personally talked to people who God rescued from an extreme easy believism standpoint, And I've talked to others who God rescued from an extreme lordship salvation point. Let me say this. Our responsibility is to understand truth, not choose sides. It is human nature to want to choose sides. Well, I like this guy and you like this guy. I I graduated from this Bible college. I didn't graduate. I don't, you know... My alma mater doesn't like your alma mater. And so the issue needs to always be what is truth, what is right, rather than who is right. There have always been those who profess to know the Lord, but don't demonstrate any evidence. Jesus called it fruit, that they are genuinely converted. The battle of the two natures, in addition to the enemy's deception, creates a lot of confusion and deception, which is basically what I said in my introductory remarks just a few minutes ago. Now, I'll give you a personal story. Back in approximately 2005, I I read two different books back to back. Uh, Both of these books had chapters dealing with the subject at hand. Now, I, I just made a statement about people who are saved will, uh, there are people who claim to be saved but don't demonstrate any fruit in their life. And both of these great men of God that I read their books back to back, both looked at Christendom and when they would see people who believed the right things, if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Check, check, check. But yet in their life, there was no demonstration that anything supernatural had taken place. No conversion, no regeneration. Just as far as a heart and a conduct level, you really couldn't distinguish a whole lot of difference other than maybe they attended church on Sunday. And one book that I read was entitled The Forgotten Spurgeon. And basically it's a book that deals with all of the controversies that C.H. Spurgeon had to deal with in his day there in London uh, back in the 1800s. 
And then the second book was a biography on a preacher that is not well known in our parts here, but certainly well known across the country. And that is a great man of God by the name of Uncle Bud Robinson, a great Nazarene preacher that had great results, and he ministered back in the early and mid-1900s. Spurgeon, it's interesting, they're both seeing the same dilemma in Christianity. Spurgeon answered the dilemma by gravitating toward the doctrine of Calvinism. Spurgeon would even admit, hey, there's things about Calvinism that I don't understand. He certainly wasn't a hyper-Calvinism. He wasn't a fatalist, but he would look at some Bible verses that are often confused as Calvinistic, and he would say, this is the only way that I can reconcile it in my mind. He basically uh, um, affirmed that when a person got saved, there had to be a work, a supernatural work of grace that took place in the heart. On the other side of that equation, Uncle Bud Robinson, he saw the same dilemma. And he would pull out some Bible verses that have to do with consecration and holiness. And he basically came up with a teaching of added grace to the Christian life. Perhaps maybe you've heard of this concept, saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. Uncle Bud Robinson viewed those as stages in the Christian life, and he ultimately taught that a believer, if he continued in discipleship, he would reach or could reach sinless perfection. Now, both of these men of God use Scripture to back their teaching, but both also leaned heavily on their personal experiences of salvation and Christian growth. Both were great men of God. Both were sincere. Both, in my humble opinion, were very incorrect. I have read biographies, big thick biographies of Charles Finney, of Whitfield, both who doctrinally were on different sides of this equation. Finney would focus on the will of man, that man had the willpower. In fact, I I even read a statement that Finney made that basically he is saying that regeneration is an act of the human will, that a, a man with his will decides to be regenerated. Well, Whitfield certainly in his Calvinistic tendencies, they don't believe that man's will has anything to do with it. And so the introductory points that I'm trying to make is that we need to be very careful in jumping or grabbing a hold of a truth that in and of itself is truth and running to its far conclusion and leaving a bunch of other truths behind or out of the equation. You know, if there are two opposing truths that I get directly out of the Bible, if I cannot reconcile those truths in my mind, there's no point in me thinking that I have to reconcile these today because I think that a lot of times heresy comes from this 
human pride saying, I've got to reconcile this right here and right now, or I'm not going to be able to teach people the truth. Look, if, if I come across two seemingly opposite truths, I'll tell you how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to say, God, I don't know how this all works together, but I trust that you do. And until you show me how these truths are reconciled, I'm going to let you be the God of truth, and I'm going to just kind of swallow my pride and say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm just going to stick with you because I know that you do. So several points here this morning that I believe are relevant to this argument. First of all, number one, I want to get this one completely out of the way. It, it has to do with the text that I chose here this morning, and that is number one, He is Lord. Now, regardless of whether you're an easy believism person or a lordship salvation person, listen, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is an absolute. He is Lord. I I believe personally that we should address Him as Lord. Uh, Just as our earthly fathers. My, My father's name was Dale Mitchell. I don't ever remember addressing him and saying, Hey, Dale. Hey, Dale, could I have the car tonight? I remember addressing him as dad because that's what his position was. That's who he was. And that's why I I really am, am not real keen on people praying and saying, Jesus, I'm not diminishing the value of that name because the Bible specifically says there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We may talk about Him as Jesus because we're identifying who He is, but when we talk to Him, I highly recommend that we call Him Lord because that is the reverence that He deserves. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to get to my conclusion just yet, but, but I will say this. I, I don't believe, listen, there are probably some people that get saved and they've already accepted the fact that Jesus is the Lord of their life. There may be others that they haven't even thought about the concept of Jesus being Lord. All they've thought about is that I'm on my way to hell as a sinner. The preacher just told me that Jesus died on the cross and took my place. And the Holy Spirit touched my heart, convicted me, and I responded. There are people that don't even think about the concept of Lordship salvation. But I will say this, I I think that it's very difficult, and I have to agree with MacArthur on that, for someone to say, yeah, I'll pray that prayer so that I can now go to heaven, but I have no desire in my heart whatsoever for Jesus to be my Lord. In essence, I'll take your salvation, but I don't want anything to do with you. I That bothers me a little bit. The idea that somebody could think they're on their way to heaven and that's really what is in their heart. 
Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Many, many times when simple salvation is being declared, the gospel writer here refers to Jesus as Lord. Romans 10.9, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can there be any controversy about this particular point that Jesus is indeed Lord? Number two, I want to declare to you this morning that salvation is simple. Um, and, And once again, not trying to be nitpicky with terminology... Because sometimes I know that, um, that what someone means is they don't necessarily have the same nitpickiness about terminology as someone else. We have a gospel track on our rack out there that says how to be 100% sure that you're on your way to heaven. And then underneath it, it says how to know in four easy steps. You know, if I'm being nitpicky about that, I'd say, you know what, I don't really like that word easy there. I mean, really think about it. When you think about the cross and what Jesus did for you, I just don't like the word easy. But I like the word simple because it is indeed simple. Now, we're not going to scratch that out on our track because I guarantee you, probably most people besides me, when they read that, they... It's just creating a point that this is not that complicated. And so I'm not being nitpicky, but I will say this. According to the Bible, salvation is indeed a simple proposition. John 3.16. You know, sometimes I fear that things like John 3.16, we get a little complacent about it. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now if you're a born again Christian, you've truly been saved and you know something happened in your heart. You know that just simply saying that you believe in Jesus is not going to get a person saved. I mean no more than saying I believe in Santa Claus is going to get me a present delivered down my chimney on December 24th, okay? It's not saying, well, yeah, I believe in this. It comes down to believing with the heart, not just with the mind. And so, yeah, we know that believing in Jesus, that is a simple thing, but it is not promoting an easy believism salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3, Paul warned Corinth by saying, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Please know that the controversy that I'm presenting to you here this morning is not for the sake of causing any confusion or making it complicated, but rather taking something that The whole Christian world has complicated 
and trying to get it to the point where really this is not as complicated as most people try to make it. So Jesus is Lord, number one, no doubt about it. Salvation is simple, number two, no doubt about it. Number three, as I've already mentioned earlier, repentance is not works. Now, John the Baptist told the Pharisees when they came out to be baptized of him, he looked at him and he said, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he said, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. In other words, and this is what I see, John the Baptist knew that these Pharisees came out to see the spectacle. Or perhaps maybe they saw this movement going on, this revival meeting. And so they, they were so enamored. They wanted to be, uh, they wanted to be important. And so they thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so they came out and John the Baptist recognized that. And they came out and maybe they're talking about being baptized, but they haven't, there has been no change in their heart whatsoever. They're just figuring, yeah, this will get us a little bit of attention, a little bit of glory. And John the Baptist says, bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. He's not saying that you have to produce the repentance by your works or by your fruit. He's simply saying that if you have truly repented, there's going to be some byproduct of that repentance. You know, if I, if I walk up to you and I punch you in the nose... Now, some of you are like, that would hurt. Others of you, it's like, yeah, go ahead, I'll hit, I'll hit you back. But if I walk up and I punch you in the nose, and let's say I realize that, oh, you're not going to take that from me, you're going to hit me back, and I go, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then you go, okay, I, I forgive you. And as soon as you say, I forgive you, I punch you in the nose again. Now, what would you think about my repentance or my apology? The reality of it is, is we'd have to say, that was insincere. And the fruit or the works demonstrated that the heart was not sincerely sorry. Now, if I was sincerely sorry for punching you in the nose, I I, I would not only say I'm sorry, but I'd be going and I'd be pulling out a handkerchief if I had one. I don't usually carry handkerchiefs. Some people do. I, I don't know. I've, something about blowing snot on cloth and putting it back in your pocket. Just, I don't know about that. And besides that, when you hand somebody a handkerchief for that, I mean, wouldn't you kind of go, no, nah, I'm good. I'll, it's all right. I'll just bleed on my shirt. <laughs> but But I would do something to try to help make amends for what I just did to you, to try to, to, to doctor you or to get you the help that you need. And so, and, and listen, that doctoring of you or taking care of you, that, that is a work, but that doesn't produce the repentance. That is a product of the repentance. And that's the point that John the Baptist was trying to make. Now, certainly someone could make repentance in their understanding, they could turn it into works. You know, the Catholic Church teaches not just repentance, but they teach something called penance, which comes from the same root word. 
you go in, you commit a sin, you go into the confessional, you tell your, your, I guess for our sake of understanding, you tell your pastor what you did, and listen, please don't do that here. But they, they tell them, it used to be they'd be in a, in like a little phone booth and it would be discreet. Now they actually have rooms where it's face to face. They even have group reconciliation where people confess their sins to their, their priest, their father, and then he'll say some Latin words and give them absolution. And very often he'll give them some penance where they can go and they can pay for it. Go and say, Ten Hail Marys and do this or do that. And, and I'll tell you what's wrong with that. That is a work, by the way. That is, I'm doing something to atone for my sins. And that's saying, not consciously, but saying subconsciously that the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was insufficient. I've got to add something to it. So yeah, certainly we can make repentance into works in our understanding, but the Scripture teaches that salvation is not of works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the Scripture makes it clear that salvation is not works, but Acts 17, verse number 30 Paul says that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so regardless of what your understanding or my understanding of repentance is, God's understanding is that a man needs to repent and believe the gospel. And if your understanding of that is incorrect, fix your understanding. Don't try to get everybody, don't create some doctrine and some type of controversy in order to explain away your personal understanding and experience. So repentance is not works. It cannot be. Otherwise, we have contradictory statements in the Word of God. Number four, salvation has evidence. If a person's saved, there's going to be some evidence. 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. God tells us that we need to do self-examinations of our own salvation. I, I, I know that, and you're looking at a man, I, and I've told you this before, I spent literally a little more than a year. I got saved as a five-year-old boy. At least I'm pretty sure that it took. Uh, there are some evidences in my life that make me believe that. But when I was 19, just before I turned 20, Man, I, I surrendered to the Lord. I got right with God. Now, I don't know what your terminology is. Some people say rededicated your life to the Lord. All, all I knew is that I am wrong. I am living wrong. God was convicting me. God's judgment was ready to fall upon me. I knew it in my heart. And I put up the white flag of surrender. And I said, Lord, 
I'm tired of living my life my way. You are right, and I've been wrong. And, and, and I just, I turned my heart toward the Lord. I don't know what words came out of my mouth. I'm sure that I said, Lord, please forgive me. I'm sure that I said, Lord, please help me to get my life on track for you. I don't know that the words that I said even mattered to God because God was waiting for my heart to turn toward Him. And I'm telling you what, I experienced His salvation in a way that I could not and did not experience as a five-year-old boy. Now, that's just, that's just common sense, wouldn't you agree? I mean, what God did for me, I, I look at that and I go, wow, that's when I remember the experience of feeling like I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you know, it wasn't after I totally surrendered my heart and my will to, to Him and to serve Him, it couldn't have been even a month later that Satan or my own flesh and my own doubt, something, only God knows what it's contributed to, but you talk about the rug being pulled out of my life and I start, I lost my assurance of salvation. I, I remember saying to a brother in the church, it's like, man, I don't know if I was saved before, but I know I am now. And as soon as I said that, it's like this thought just entered my mind in such a powerful way. It's like, well, if you don't know when, then how do you know that you are? And then I'd hear preachers all into emotionalism, and they'd get up and talk about their testimony. And they'd say, if that didn't bless your heart, then you're not saved. And I'm like, I didn't, I mean, I just, I was listening to you. I agreed with you, but it didn't make me want to shout. So (gasps) maybe they're right. I'm not saved. And for over a year, man, I was tormented in my mind. I get some relief at a church service. The next week, I would, my, my assurance would be gone. I'd pray and I'd ask the Lord to save me and I'd think, oh, okay, I'm okay. And then it just would come back. I'd come to the altar. Some preacher would say, you just need to chuck it all and get born again. I'd chuck it all and come down and beg God to save me. Even make it public. Willing to do whatever I had to do. And it's just like no peace in my heart. You know why God never would answer my prayers, I look back on it now, it's because I was already saved. If He would have answered my prayer, then He would have been answering a prayer that wasn't true. Why why would a father, I mean, why would He, why would God endorse my personal deception? All that would do would be further caused me to be deceived. And so God never gave me some kind of miraculous answer to my prayer. I'll tell you what He did do. It drove me into the Bible. And I started seeing all of the verses that would just obliterate my assurance. And then I'd start seeing the verses that would give me assurance. And I started studying. And I started praying. And little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, during that year of turmoil, God started instilling the Word of God. Now faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And just little by little, the truth started chipping away 
at my loss of assurance and every time the Holy Spirit and the Bible would take a little chip of that doubt away and insert a little chip of truth and then just little by little, and it took over a year, all of a sudden now I was solid in my salvation and it wasn't because of any preacher's message It wasn't because of a trip to the altar because, listen, you can have an emotional experience and some people do, and that settles it for them. But for me, I had to know personally that my life and testimony was in agreement with this book right here. And you know what? When you have that, it's solid. I'm not saying I've never had doubts since, but when I do have doubts... I have a foundation that I can go back to that is unchangeable. My circumstances change. My understanding changes. My emotions change. But this book right here is unchangeable. Ultimately, this should be the foundation of our salvation. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Matthew 7, verse number 16 Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. And so there is evidence, there is fruit, when a person is truly born again. Now let me say this, that doesn't mean that God has appointed all of us as fruit inspectors. God says, examine yourself, whether you're in the faith. Listen, I can make an assessment or a judgment of another believer, and as a pastor, I have to do this from time to time. If I have somebody that says, yeah, I'm saved, I I, I got saved in vacation Bible school, and you look at their life, and their life is characterized by worldly living, and it just seems like that spiritually there's no lights on, I mean, they're just there going through the motions, hey, I think that we need to have some concerns. But that doesn't mean that it's my place or your place to get in somebody's face and go, You're not saved. Nothing wrong with saying, are you sure that you're saved? Where's your fruit? Ultimately, wouldn't you agree, it doesn't matter what we think of someone, it all comes down to the individual and God because we're going to all stand before God someday. You know, you can convince me, you can convince your family, you can convince everybody around you that you're saved. But when it's all said and done, we're going to stand before a holy God. What are you going to say then when that God knows everything about you, not what you're trying to market to this world? Now, there are some evidences of salvation, and I'll go quickly here. I'm just giving you four really basic ones. Number one, supernatural changes in the heart and life. We pass from death to life. We pass from darkness to light. We've been regenerated. We've been born again. That means some new desires come into our life. Listen, when before I got right with the Lord, I didn't desire to go to church. 
I had to go to church. I just, let's get it over with. I'd sit in church thinking, okay, well, I wish this preacher would shut up so I can go home and watch football. When I got right with the Lord, it's like, oh no, he's done. Give me more, preacher. I had a hunger, just like a newborn baby has a hunger. You don't teach them to be hungry. It's a natural byproduct of life. And so, yeah, there's changes in desires. You know, when I got right with the Lord, I experienced a vivid change in my conscience. Yeah, my conscience bothered me before I would feel guilty and dirty over things that I did. But, oh, after after I got close to the Lord and experienced the peace of His presence in my life, then when I sinned, oh, it just grieved in a way that, I mean, you know what I'm talking about if you're saved. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's like we just slapped our best friend. It's rough. And that changed in my heart. And people that I know of that are saved will testify to the same thing. Number two, invisible guidance. Romans 8.14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Being led, there is something about being saved that now God is our Father and there's an invisible hand. Kind of like those um, those bumpers on the bowling alley for kids where they, you know, you ever seen where they'll they'll raise those rails up when kids are bowling so that the ball will bounce off the rail instead of going in the gutter? I mean, when I got right with the Lord, I started experiencing these invisible hands that whenever my life's headed toward a gutter, it's like God's just there trying to get me back on track no matter what. Can't explain it, couldn't prove it, but I know it to be true. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, there's something supernatural that's trying to lead you in the direction and the path that God wants you to go. Number three, chastisement. What's chastisement? Oh, that's the woodshed. That's the whooping, if you will. The Bible says, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Hey, you can claim to be a son all that you want. But if you truly are one of God's children, when you sin and when we go astray, then the Lord will chasten us, not punish us, but chasten us to try to correct our mind, our heart, and our behavior. I don't enjoy God's woodshed, but I wouldn't trade it for anything I have always, I look back and I am thankful that God doesn't let me continue down the wrong path. He always tries to bring me back and correct me with His loving chastisement. Number four, the love of other Christians. You know, you ever seen somebody that says, yeah, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I believe in Jesus but they have no use for church or Christianities. They don't desire any Christian fellowship. They don't want to read the Word of God. They don't want to hear preaching. They certainly don't want to pray with anyone. There is no spiritual life there. In fact, I, I know people that say that they're saved and every Christian out there is just a bunch of hypocrites. 
You know what that is? That's a cop-out and an excuse. There's hypocrites everywhere. You know, there's, there's hypocrites in Walmart. So are you going to stop eating groceries? Yeah, I, I had to stop eating. There's hypocrites. You know what? And, and every child of God, we all have our sins and our failures and our imperfections. And yes, I grew up in churches, literally, that were full of hypocrites. I could tell you stories about Sunday school teachers and song leaders, stuff that I was privy to their sin life. I'm not talking about just a, a failure. I'm talking about their part of how they lived that was wicked But when I got right with the Lord, I started seeing that, yeah, there's hypocrites everywhere, but there's also some people that genuinely love God. And they're out there, and they're in here. And yeah, we got to put up with one another's faults, but there's something about the brethren. The Bible says in 1 John 3.16, or excuse me, 3.14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Now, You say, well, maybe I'm not saved because I just don't feel like I love people the way that I ought to. Well, look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to. You see how this works? God supernaturally puts an affinity in our hearts toward other believers But then there's also an act of the will that goes along with that. There are times when it's like, hey, just like a husband-wife relationship. You say, well, I I told my wife, I, I love my wife, but she doesn't feel loved or any love relationship, it's there, but sometimes it can grow cold. Or sometimes it just doesn't, we don't feel like we love that person. Well, what do you do? You you start acting. Love is an action. And you know what? If you just feel like I don't love the brethren like I ought to, start loving them. Start doing things that demonstrate that love and you'll find, wow, that really is fulfilling because the Holy Spirit, that's what the Lord wants me to be. So, uh, listen, all of these things are yes, they're supernatural, but God works in His sovereignty and He works in conjunction to man's volition, man's free will, if you will. God puts desires in our heart, but our human will still must respond to those desires. Failures do not necessarily indicate a lack of salvation any more than the mechanical performance of loving the brethren would produce salvation. Faith produces works. Works are an evidence of faith. So easy to get confused and put the cart before the horse. And then my last point, number five, is this. Saved people are new creatures with old natures. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I um, 
that's the that's something supernatural that God does. And I don't have time here this morning to take you to Romans 7, but if you would, in your spare time, when you get home today, take a look at Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, because the Apostle Paul demonstrates that every born-again Christian has this struggle inside of us with our old nature. He says, the good that I would do, how to perform it, I find not. He said, when I do right, he says, sin dwelleth in me. There's all this internal conflict between the new nature that we received when we got saved and the old nature that's still here and will not be eradicated until the rapture. And so that is the conflict that takes place. And sadly, sadly, many of these ditches of heresy, lordship salvation, easy believism, they don't take into consideration that a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it stems from that conflict between we are 100% saved and regenerated, and yet we still have this old man inside of us as well. So in conclusion, which is true? Lordship salvation or easy believism? The answer, both are true and both can be false. The error, once again, comes from how each individual responds and understands the truth presented in the Word of God. Listen, let me be, get a little bit personal. I don't know every one of your backgrounds and every one of your, uh, just all of the details of your personal testimony of salvation. But let me say this. The person who puts their faith and in a simple prayer and response to a message needs to grasp some aspects of lordship salvation. So what do you mean by that? I mean people that say, I'm saved because they remember a time when they came forward and they did what the preacher said they needed to do. They prayed the prayer, so to speak. But if you would be honest with your own life, and it's like, hey, I'm putting my faith in that event, not from the heart in the cross of Calvary. Because let me tell you something, if from your heart you believe in that cross right there, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you believe it from the heart, it's going to have an effect on your life in a major way. If it's just like, yeah, yeah, of course I, I believe. Yeah, I'm a good person. Are you saved? Oh, yeah. I've never understood that. Oh, yeah. What do you mean, oh, yeah? I mean, if somebody, you ask me if I'm, are you saved? I'd say, praise God. Not, oh, yeah. It's almost like, well, of course I'm saved. I'm a good person. In our culture here in this area, most people claim to be saved. And so because of that, there is deception. And many of those same people, they came forward in vacation Bible school, and but they put their faith in their response 
not in the cross of Calvary. If you are that person, you need to grasp the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and you need to let your will acknowledge that He not only wants to be your Savior, but He wants to be the Lord of your life. That's why Jesus said we are born into the kingdom of God. We're saying, God, we want to be in your kingdom. I'm tired of being in my own kingdom and my will ruling my life. Now, listen, you may be saved, but you have not been yielding to the discipleship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you get saved again. It just means you've got to yield. And you know what? If you'll yield your heart to the Lord... God will take care of the rest of it. You know, you know, there's a lot of things that if we'll just yield to the light that God gives us, God's like, I got this. So what if I didn't, don't fully understand? God does. Respond to the light that God gives you. He will take care of the rest. Now you may be a person that you're placing too much confidence In a yielded will, you may need to grasp the simplicity of childlike faith in the gospel. You may be the personality type that you're trying to prove to yourself that you're saved. And what you need to do is you need to just get rid of, get over yourself and realize that salvation is that simple childlike faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Paul said, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I close with this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know what I see in that passage right there? I see both ditches, easy believism and lordship salvation. I see the Apostle Paul in just really one little sentence there taking And giving us the understanding of how this whole thing works. We have to work it out. But we can only work out what God has worked in. And you know what? Yes, you're going to have to yield to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is not your yielding that will do the saving. It will only bring the salvation because we by faith are responding. Jesus earned our salvation, and it's all about Him. If you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing, if you have the evidences of salvation here from the Word of God, then you can examine yourself and you can say, hey, as far as I can tell, I'm saved. If you've got some things missing, then I want to encourage you here this morning. If you examine yourself and you realize... And I might be missing something here. Swallow your pride and yield your heart.
to the gospel, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What more can we do? When the Apostle Peter was walking on the water and he began to sink, he didn't understand what was... He didn't, I mean, he wasn't saying, Oh, I th- Jesus, I think I got my eyes off of you and I got them on myself or I got them on the wind. He didn't have time for all of that. He simply recognized, I'm going down. And he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus saved him. How can it be any more simple than that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth that we have in this book. Father, I realize that the topic today is very controversial among different schools of thought. Uh, Lord, I've tried to uh, do my best to just focus on what the Bible says. And Lord, I'm not uh, under any pretense of having all of this completely figured out, but God, I do see so much truth on both sides of this controversy. But I also realize that the devil wants to deceive. Lord, he wants lost people thinking that they're saved. And Lord, he wants saved people thinking that they're lost. I pray, Father, that uh, regardless of where we're at, that we'd not be complacent about the truth presented today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remain seated, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you'd like to respond to the message here today, if you'd like to come forward and pray, I'd like to invite you to come. If you're here this morning and you've got some questions or uh, you feel like you need some answers or maybe just someone to talk to and pray with you, you can come forward. You can, If you'll raise your hand right where you're at, then we'll certainly do everything we can to help you. Not here to coerce anyone into responding at all. We just simply want to give you an opportunity. If you're not saved, please get saved before you leave this auditorium. If you're saved and struggling with assurance, then get your eyes off of yourself and your memories and your own understanding and just put your faith and trust in the Word of God, nothing else. Let's stand to our feet and we'll be dismissed. Appreciate everyone being here today. We trust that the message has been a help to each and every one of you. I'd like to ask Brother W.B. Sharp if you would close us in a word of prayer. And when he's finished praying, 
then you are dismissed. God bless you all.